I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Bill Finch. He's the founding director of the Paint Rock Forest Research Center in the Cumberland Plateau region of Northeast Alabama. He's worked to conserve southeastern biodiversity for more than 40 years as an award-winning writer and editor as conservation director of the Nature Conservancy in Alabama as director of Mobile Botanical Gardens. He continues to write a weekly column on gardens and natural history and as a weekly radio show. His book, Longleaf, Far as the Eye Can See, was developed with his partner, Beth, and is now in its fourth printing. So first off, thank you for your work in the world. Second, thank you for being on the program. Oh, it's good to be here. Thank you. So I have, ever since I was a child, thought that if I could live 100 lifetimes, I would want to live some of them in the Deep South. And your work has convinced me that the place I would want to live in the Deep South is Alabama. And because of because of the wild nature there, that's that's why I would want to live in the Deep South. So can you tell me why that's a good idea? <laughs> yes, it's scary to think that uh, that Alabama has uh, this incredible value, not only as a beautiful place to live, but as a as an incredible resource for the whole continent. And and uh, we we have this weird impressions of Alabama. I just got to say off the top. Uh, that are generated in part by the people of Alabama, that are generated by the things we did to Alabama people and the things we did in Alabama, we people. But there's another Alabama, and it's the land. It's the landscape. It's the biodiversity on top of that landscape. Uh, and it, it's, it never quite makes the press uh, quite as readily as the things we did to the state make the press. And and so it's it's really important to sit down and look at that because it's important not just to Alabama, but it's important to all of Eastern North America, probably to the whole continent. And you know, what a what a preposterous thing to say. But let's talk about it. Let me let me just give you some examples, which is just the center of aquatic diversity in North America and probably in the temperate world is Alabama. Sounds big. Let me just break it down for you. Alabama has more fish species than any other state. I mean, I could take you to a river, just a single river, Paint Rock River or the Cahaba River, lots of middling streams in Alabama, and there would be more fish species in that river, shoot, in a mile or two of that river than there would be in the entire state of California. That's no exaggeration. Okay, it's I true. Just, I just want to point out that California, that when you say that, that's even more extraordinary because California is made up of let's say 50 different biomes so you've got right. you know desert type fish you've got salmon type fish you've got um chaparral type you know you've got fish who, who live in streams near chaparral so that's that's it's extraordinary yeah it's numbers i mean we've got on the paint rock river where we just did some fish sampling uh in a few hours we could get 50 species of fish uh if we sampled all year long we'd be getting more than 100 species of fish on that river um, I think California is probably around 70, 75, 80 species. I'm not sure how many of those are native or non-native, but that's about the number. Uh, and it, it's just extraordinary. And Alabama is a very small state. California is um, a relatively small state. It's, it's not Rhode Island, but it's certainly not California, which is nearly three times larger than Alabama. So it's the center of fish diversity. Listen, <laughs> mussels. You don't care about mussels, do you? Everybody should care about mussels. And they're, they're so astonishing. They're so incredible. 
maybe the reason more people don't care about them is that they're not as common and as abundant in many places as they are in Alabama. But mussels, uh, l- let me just say that Alabama, which represents about 0.5% of the landmass of the United States, Alabama alone has more mussel species than all of South America. Just letting that sink in. <laughs> it's absolutely astonishing. It's extraordinary. Who would have thought uh, the, the snail diversity, the aquatic snail diversity, we don't have good ways of comparing it. It's likely that Alabama is the center of snail diversity globally. Crawfish, uh, we, uh, you know, increasingly we're eating a lot of them uh, throughout the United States. Uh, it was a fad started in Louisiana. That's fine. The center of crawfish diversity globally is Alabama. We've got 100 species of crawfish. And this is sort of a, these are examples of, of ways that we can compare to other states to just sort of get this incredible sense of this diversity in all of these streams in Alabama. There are so many different kinds, uh, so many different levels. They've been hammered just like streams out west have been. Uh, they, they have had all kinds of well, dams on them. Uh, there's all sorts of silt problems. And yet, in spite of that, we're still the center of aquatic diversity in North America. And it's not just not just the fish. Not the, somebody did a study recently looking at turtle diversity because turtles are pretty interesting when you start thinking about them. I mean, they were here before the dinosaurs. They're this incredibly old lineage, very old lineage, and turtles live an incredibly long time. I am always impressed by the idea that um, Darwin, when he was on the when he was traveling around the world, when was that? 1830s. Uh, and on the Beagle, and they needed to provision the ships. And uh, and one of the ways they provisioned the ships on the Galapagos was to take the tortoises off of the islands and eat them on the way back to England. Uh, and they managed not to eat all of them. And some of them made their way into zoos. And one of them uh, that Darwin picked up died in like 1993, 1994, <laughs> just to give you an idea of how long turtles live. So you think you want to know something about turtles. They're, they're, they're really extraordinary. They're really cool. And the center of turtle diversity in the Western Hemisphere is not the Amazon. It's not Central America. It's Alabama. It's extraordinary. Uh, you, you just don't think about those kinds of things. And yet there it is. And not just the aquatic diversity, it's the terrestrial diversity. It's the forest. It's the grasslands. Um, the, the center of tree diversity in North America, according to the Biodive North America program, is Alabama. It's squarely in Alabama. That's center of total tree diversity. It's in Alabama. It's not the Pacific Northwest. It's not New England. It's not the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. It's Alabama. There are, if you walked, uh, if you walked all the way from, say, Asheville along the Appalachian Trail uh, up to Pennsylvania, you would you would feel really privileged to see ten or twelve species of oaks. That's all you could possibly see. There are forty species of oaks in Alabama. There is uh, on a single hillside in the Red Hills. It's not at all unusual to encounter twenty, twenty-five, and maybe more species of oaks extraordinary oak diversity. Alabama is the global center of hickory diversity, the global center. 
Um, just we're looking at a place here in Paint Rock. Uh, we've got at least nine species of hickories. We're looking at another species that we that hasn't been named yet. Another taxon. We're, we're we probably are going to end up with ten species of hickories here, and just uh, not even a hundred acres, a couple of hundred acres at most. Incredible diversity. It's the center of magnolia diversity uh, in North America. Um, the, the list, it's a, it's the, it's the Buckeye state. I'm sorry if anybody's from Ohio, because I don't mean to deprive you of your one or two species of Buckeyes, but, uh, Alabama has, is the great center of, of Buckeye diversity, uh, in North America and, uh, really extraordinary. We're, we just are looking at a new species, uh, today, uh, that will likely be named. Uh, so you, you just go through this and you, you realize, Dead gum. <laughs> How did we miss this? How did we miss this in, in all of the news that came out of Alabama, that Alabama is so important? And, and Derek, I, I just, I got to go on for just a minute because we have these ideas about species and they're very, very interesting and they're probably not entirely apt and not entirely accurate. And so we've kind of fumbled along trying to name species for a long time. So they're file drawers. But we really haven't captured true diversity if we're only focusing on species. And so I would also make another case. Alabama is home to this incredibly important genetic diversity within species. So we can say, gosh, you got all the species. But what's even more important is that within those species, there is this incredible genetic diversity that we don't see in many other places farther north. And there's some very good reasons for that. So, I mean, that's kind of the catalog. Anything surprising there? Well, everything surprising there, um, unfortunately. Um, I, I want to ask you in a moment um, why this diversity, because um, that's the first thing that comes up. But before then, I want to say two things about your last point about the diversity within species diversity. And one of them is that uh, years ago, somebody brought me to do a talk in uh, Illinois, and the guy absolutely loved prairies. He was devoted to prairies, and he was devoted to restoring prairies. And he believed in diversity within species, diversity within species, so much that when he was attempting to replant, he was uncomfortable replanting from like more than two uh, sloughs over. Um, like he would he would not take seed from 100 miles away from the same species because he wanted to because it was such diversity within the species. I thought that was a very interesting point. And the other one is that this is a point that George Werthner has made time and time again about how incredibly stupid it is to uh cut down a forest because you're afraid of a um an insect infestation or some sort of pest so you cut down the forest beforehand because he right. says you're you're That's, killing all of the yes. ones who might have resistance to it you're killing everybody when there could be genetic resistance to it among 15 of those trees oh let's let's just say this real briefly you want to look at the fate of chestnut in north america the fate of chestnut in north america was that we cut down the trees that probably had the resistance uh, and and we we cut off our own future. Uh, it, it's an amazing thing. Yes, within species there is this incredible diversity that we that we really 
if we don't observe it, if we're not careful with it, we're cutting off our own future in some really devastating ways. Uh, so, yeah, that's a, that's a big deal. So let's let's go to that next question that should be obvious or not that the question should be obvious to everybody, not the answer. Why this diversity? That that just seems an insane amount of diversity. Yes. Why? So it's 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 interesting. I, I will have to say that at, at core, it's easiest to understand that Alabama has been a warehouse of diversity for millions of years, that its diversity is very stable and has been around for a long time and, and has consequently has been able to diversify. California's diversity is, if you took California as a state, uh, its total diversity of plants, for example, would exceed Alabama. It's much larger, uh, of course, but there has been a lot of recent speciation in California. So not so much at the genus level, but individual species sort of finding their way into these new habitats that are rapidly being created by the geological explosions occurring in California. Uh, but Alabama's diversity is very old and has been very stable. And that's important because there's this thing, and we're beginning to talk about it, and maybe we'll talk about it in an intelligent way someday. It's called climate change. It's been going on for a long time. And if you look back very recently, in my mind, and very recently in terms of evolution and in terms of how forests work, 18,000 years ago, uh, we were glaciated. Uh, there were glaciers uh, extending down into the continent, uh, kind of on a, a drooping, a drooping zone uh, from the Pacific Northwest uh, down through the Rockies and over into uh, nearly Washington D.C. And there's a line in Ohio, for example, just north of Cincinnati, where everything was a glacier, uh, and. When you look at that and you realize, gosh, that's just 18,000 years ago. We didn't invent this eastern deciduous forest in 18,000 years. We didn't come up with all these species of oaks in 18,000 years. And yet there was nothing in New England. The Smoky Mountains, the Great Smoky Mountains, Asheville was was tundra and boreal forest. Uh, it was like Wait, Asheville, North, North Carolina? Asheville, North Carolina. Wow. So, and Delcourt and Delcourt and some other folks have done some great work on that. And, and you know, there were little refuges, pockets here and there, but the bulk of the biodiversity was in Georgia, northwest Florida, the Carolinas to a degree, Alabama, Mississippi. And, uh, and as you moved farther west, you got into drier conditions that made it very difficult. If you got into peninsula Florida, you got into really almost desert-like conditions during the last glaciation. But there's been something about Alabama and Georgia and adjacent parts of Mississippi that have been, there's a flywheel there, uh, the Gulf of Mexico. And it has always kept that area relatively humid and relatively warm. Um, and not extremely warm either, which is really important as well. And, and so what's happened is, is that all of these things have had a chance to evolve here almost. It's not really truly tropical, but it, it, it is, they have evolved in much the same way that tropical forests evolve over a long period of time without those major disturbances uh, that kind of sets the clock back again and, and everything has to start over. 
And so it's really important. It's been this great warehouse. And every time we got catastrophic warming, which happened repeatedly in the past, after particularly during the Pleistocene and late Pliocene, um, this warehouse would release its diversity to the rest of the country. Uh, and, and that's all great, except you kind of have to understand what happens after these glaciers retreat. The species that move north are going to be the species that have um, great tolerance for cold. And, and they're going to be the genetics within species are going to be the ones that move north. They're going to be the ones that have great tolerance for cold. They're going to be pretty naive to diseases uh, because they're not going to encounter a lot of diseases on the edge of those glaciers as they move up. It's because it's still pretty chilly, a lot, not a lot of disease and insect pressure. Uh, and they're not going to have a lot of diversity. Um, there's a lot of things that happen. It's called a founder's effect. You probably maybe run into that term before, but uh, a lot of the species that move north uh, basically don't bring a lot of genetic diversity with them, but they but they take over. And they so what you end up with are tree species that don't have a lot of genetic diversity as things recapitalize and move north. So you're losing the species. You don't get all the species moving north. And you lose genetic diversity within species. And and so it's you could say that the whole continent could look like Alabama, except for these um, glaciations that keep coming in, as they did in Europe, as they did in Asia, and crushing that diversity, wiping it out, eliminating it over large parts of the continent. And then it has to be repopulated. And that warehouse has always been Alabama, Georgia, Northwest Florida, the Carolinas. Uh, to a to a major degree, uh, I don't. It, it's it's wrong to focus on any one state. I mean, these are political boundaries. They're all play an important role. But one thing in the luck of the political boundaries is that Alabama ended up with this incredible topographic diversity, from basically the southern end of the Appalachians, all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, uh, and and all of these incredibly strange habitats in between. Uh, so if you want to talk about biomes, I, I, it's just, you know, Alabama may actually compete with California for the number of different biomes because uh, of the incredible topographic diversity, soil diversity uh, through a very uh, throughout the state. So all of these things contribute. And that that's without going on too long. That's the best explanation I can give you for why this diversity is here. So I, I want to ask maybe kind of a stupid question, which is, I understand generically the importance of diversity to the resilience of a natural community, what some people would call an ecosystem. And, but, but, but what's the advantage? Why, why, why would a river have a hundred species of fish <laughs> in a mile? That, that, that I'm I'm having a little bit of trouble getting my mind around that. It's a it's the million dollar question. You know, it's it's a very interesting question that researchers are asking all over. Uh, in a place called Barro, Colorado, in in uh, Panama, uh, at a research uh, facility designed by uh, one of the founders of our program, Stephen Hubble. Stephen Hubble helped design our program here at Paint Rock, just as he did in Barro, Colorado. The research in Barrow, Colorado, in this forest has been going on for uh, just a year shy, I think, of 50 years. 
Uh, and it's it's really incredible the amount of data that's been produced. Most of what we know about how the tropics respond to climate change, it's always going to reference Barra, Colorado, and the work done there by Smithsonian and uh, and Hubble and the many people who followed him. But that was the question Hubble wanted to know. I mean, when you're looking at, you know, why why do you have, you know, X hundred number of species in a hectare? I mean, what what's going on here? Uh, why why can't you just settle for 50 species of trees? Why do you have 300, 400, 500 species of trees in this very small area? What's happening? And there are many answers to that. I think one of the important answers, though, and maybe the most important one uh, coming out of that research is something called the Red Queen hypothesis. And it's very interesting. You remember the Red Queen in Alice? Right. And uh, she says, you got to keep running to stay in one place. You got to keep running to stay in one place. And, and w- what's happening is pathogens are probably driving speciation in the tropics in a major way. And the more <laughs> the more diversity you have, in a way, the more diversity it encourages and the more diversity you need. Wait, can, and so can, it becomes can, an explosion. That's one answer. Not the only answer, but it's a very important one. And uh, there are classical niche theory or niche theory, whichever you prefer, is uh, has kind of taken it on the chin lately. Uh, there's not niches niches in the way we normally think of, I think. But it's clear that in a place like Alabama, there are so many different little nooks and crannies uh, at a large scale and at a small scale in this landscape that species can just take advantage of them as they develop and in a better way. And I do think that time plays a huge role in that. Uh, so the more time you have, the more the more time there is for those species to more, in a more refined way, exploit the nooks and crannies of the landscape. And then you've got the pathogen issues and all of the other things that come into it. So, yeah, why any species diversity at all is, is an interesting question. What, what, drove, what drove the first explosion of species diversity? Why did it go from one to two? Uh, and why is it going from two to two million uh, is is a really tough question. Uh, but uh, at its heart, I think we can look at things like pathogens and that diversity necessarily drives more diversity. When you were saying that pathogens drive diversity, I thought you were going to say that pathogens drive everything because I, I think they kind of do. Um, yes. And I'm thinking, oh, I've got, so this is, this is a, a, a kind of obscure question, and then we can go back to more yeah. big topics. But, but I remember reading about um, a certain parasite who goes from seabirds to uh, shellfish to fish. And one of the things it does is it causes fish to flash their bellies to the surface so that yeah. it wants to get eaten by the fish or the bird. So they yeah. fly. They, they make the they make the fish swim to the surface, flies their bellies. Birds see them, eat them, passes the path of the parasite on to the next level. And the point is that it ends up that estuaries that rely on this parasite, if they don't have them, the seabirds starve because it's too hard to feed. So it ends up that these uh, parasites actually drive 
the entire food cycle. Yeah. So my my question, which is an obscure little question, which I know is coming way out of left field, but given everything else you you've said, so are you gonna also tell me that Alabama is like the parasite center of the world too? Well, it's that's we don't really have ways of comparing that, but it would be great if we did. I do think that one of the things that is very important to understand about Alabama is that we do have a lot of very important pathogens down here that we have already survived. The north, northern climates, and climates that have been cooler uh, and are naive to these pathogens, ooh boy, you got a lot to learn from what's already happened in Alabama. You've got a lot to learn from the species that have already gone through that keyhole with those pathogens. So, yes, we do have many, many pathogens. I I would love to talk about something like Phytophthora, uh, which is uh, Greek, which means plant destroyer. It's an uh, omycetes. It's a, a water mold, not quite like a fungus, uh, just a bizarre little thing. And it has had a huge impact on everything from chestnuts to uh, shortleaf pines to uh, extinction of trees. It's now playing Phytophthora. Remorum is a big issue now in California, of course. Uh, it was probably imported into California uh, into a naive landscape, and it's playing, it's just devastating California, uh, California live oaks. Uh, that's probably because we, in part, because we've introduced so much water into those landscapes that made Phytophthora possible to, it made it possible for Phytophthora to invade. But it, it, it's it's a big deal. So understanding those pathogens is incredibly important to determining what our future is going to look like. Oh, and and we don't, we don't, we're just barely beginning to understand that. Can I tell you a story about elms? Oh, this please, is really, really cool. And this is really, really on, on topic. Um, yes, please. So we have heard this story all over, uh, and you've heard it perhaps repeatedly. I know people in the East certainly that American that Dutch elm disease wiped out American elms, and indeed, if you were in the East and even many places out into the Midwest, and elms were planted everywhere. American elms were planted in every city. It was the cityscape. It was, and they were astonishing. They were beautiful trees. Uh, Dutch elm disease came. And uh, there were several bouts, and by the 50s and 60s, I mean, we had lost, the estimates are maybe a billion elms. Um, and it it was an extraordinary loss. And everybody said, oh, we can't grow elms anymore. American elms don't grow anywhere. They've all been wiped out by Dutch elm disease. Now, I heard the same story growing up. And uh, and every now and then, I'd step out and look at a tree, and, and I'd say, God, that looks like American elm. And I'd say, no, nah, can't be. <laughs> and at some point when I was in my 20s, I suddenly realized there are millions of American elms in Alabama, millions. And so I began investigating, and it looks like the, the, the bug that carries the Dutch elm disease, the European elm borer, is everywhere. It has more generations in the south than it has up north. The, the, the borer is here. The disease is clearly here. Uh, we, we've known that uh, you can see small little outbreaks on trees every now and then, but it doesn't affect the trees. The trees 
almost never succumb. And they've been completely wiped out up north. And it's a very interesting thing because we, all of our information, of course, comes from so much of the research has been focused in the north where the great universities are, let's face it, um, accepting those in, in the west. And uh, it's uh, Harvard, Notre Dame, UP, whatever. Um, it's those were the that was where the research was done. Penn State, not down south, and so no one ever actually looked at the fact that these American elms were surviving down south. And it wasn't until somebody at Washington Arboretum noticed, oh well, we've got a we've got an elm here. And it's surviving. We don't know where it came from exactly, but it's surviving uh, this uh, Dutch elm disease. Maybe we ought to research it. And they looked looked at this elm and they realized it was chemically different than any other elm they had ever studied. And then I could, oh boy, I'd have to talk about ploidy, but it turned out it was it was a triploid, uh, and that all the other elms that they had ever studied had an abnormal set of chromosomes. They were tetraploid. This too had an abnormal set of chromosomes. It was tip triploid, but that meant that there were true diploids out there, just like people, uh, one set of chromosomes from each parent. And so then they began investigating. It turns out that the South has at least two different, very distinctive types of American elm. And both of them seem to be resistant to Dutch elm disease. And the future, <laughs> and people can say, oh, you know, there's no future for elms in America. And the future of American elms is sitting right there under our noses all along. Those trees are perfectly healthy when you move them up north. They don't get the disease. And so understanding sort of a paradigm for understanding the importance of this forest. Turns out that <clears throat> American elms are probably two species that have been separated by 11 million years. That's the first thing. Uh, pretty pretty clear delineation there. And we also know that within species, those elms that went up north were just naive. They had no appreciation for the pathogens that they would have to, that they were going to have to suffer at some point uh, and very little resistance to it. They're actually, their vascular bundles had developed to the point that that made them particularly susceptible to disease. And so boom, they were gone in an instant almost. And uh, whereas the, the trees down south still have that genetic resistance. So this study of this understanding of pathogens and how it's going to change things as those pathogens move north is really important. I will say one other thing about pathogens. They're just like plants. They don't like cold. <laughs> I mean, the, the colder things get, the more it's going to, the more the ground freezes, the more likely it is that the ground freezes the fewer pathogens you're going to see in those areas. Uh, they just can't survive those long periods without uh, of, of freezing or cold. And so pathogens that didn't move north in the 19th century are now suddenly moving north. And trees that, um, we lost trees in the south to certain pathogens, uh, a tree called Franklinia. And, and I could go up, it's a beautiful camellia relative uh, that grew only in the uh, pitcher plant bogs and swamps of the southeast. Uh, and now the only places found are in places like Arborita in, in New England or in England, where it's still pretty cold. But you know what? I, I'm watching Phytophthora, this root disease, this destroyer of plants, move north. 
and it's wiping out those populations even in New England. Uh, so it's um, it's something to watch. The pathogens moving north are the reasons we need to be thinking very carefully about what plants are going to be moving north. So I I have another off topic question before we before we move to our next main topic, which is, um, and sorry for the abrupt change in topic, but is there uh, is there an equivalent insect? I love insects. Is there is there a equivalent insect? Is it all? Is Alabama also the center of insect diversity for North America? It's really hard to compare across insects. We think that uh, we think that aquatic insects. You know, it, nobody keeps numbers on insects the way they should. It's kind of a, uh, it's kind of haphazard, uh, and it's really hard to it's really hard to zero in on which insect do we use as a proxy for looking at diversity. All that. Let me just preface that to say that we don't have really great ways of comparing diversity across states, but we th- do think. We think, and there's a lot of work that would need to be done, that in, in particularly in aquatic insects, things like mayflies, uh, caddisflies, uh, Alabama is probably going to be in the top, certainly would be in the top uh, in the United States, maybe uh, among the top locations globally for those types of insects. Um, lightning bugs, fireflies, whatever you want to call them, the diversity here is just extraordinary. Uh, it's hard, again, to compare across states uh, because the records just aren't that good. But I think in those kinds of things, yes, I think we're going to excel. So I think everything you've been what what has happened to Alabama diversity of various sorts in the last 500 years? How much mm-hmm. how much how much has um our way of life affected the diversity, the biodiversity there. Yeah, you know that's an interesting human story, and I. It's always good to understand that there is this linkage between um, human oppression, uh, humans oppressing other humans, uh, and the oppression of the landscape and the oppression of the biodiversity. And Alabama is famous for, certainly for the human oppression, the exploitation of other humans and uh, of other people. And uh, it's, it's, it's so much a part of Alabama's story that went hand in hand with the exploitation of the landscape in many cases. I, I guess um, the Black Belt of Alabama, a really important, if you, you, you will never understand You'll never understand Donald Trump if you don't understand the Black Belt of Alabama because you won't understand George Wallace. You won't understand racial politics. You won't understand the code words that all developed from this incredible experiment and oppression in Alabama that was spread across the whole South, but was really concentrated in a, in a major way in Alabama uh, during the Cotton Kingdom. And it just wiped out this incredible prairie environment in central Alabama. It was a true prairie. Uh, largely treeless, these incredible soils that were both very rich and very difficult, but the grasses loved them, the, the wildflowers loved them. Uh, we probably lost so many species there that we we never even we never even knew were there because of of the uh, because of the impact of the cotton kingdom, and that uh, that also played a major role that the growth of the cotton kingdom. I, I want to say in in the destruction of the. Uh, 
of the remnants of the nations, the original nations of Alabama, the Kohasati and the Alabama uh, and the Choctaw, uh, uh, the uh, Uchi, all of those tribes uh, encountered um, this European influx that was trying to exploit this landscape. And it was really, really very destructive. Uh, I, I, it was incredibly consequential. And then we had the timber industry come in. Uh, and the timber industry just leveled huge areas of Alabama. Uh, many of them could recover in a humid climate. Those forests could recover if we're careful and if we're thoughtful. But in many cases, we weren't careful or thoughtful and still aren't uh, about how we how we sort of reforest these landscapes and allow reforestation to happen. All of those things were big. The loss of, I also will have to say, it's always really important to understand biodiversity in the South. We lost fire. We lost fire as this incredibly important force in the South. Um, there are plants that would not flower unless they burned that year. They would never flower. Only in the years in which they, they burned would they flower. And so when you lose, you, you lost any chance of regeneration. We lost the cane break. Alabama is the center of bamboo diversity. I hate to keep going on about this, but it is the center of bamboo diversity in North America. We have we now just named our fourth species of bamboo. It was incredibly important to Alabama. It was in areas like the cane break. We lost this cane break, and, and with it, we lost a lot of diversity, including a species that was declared extinct today or yesterday, today, uh, Backman's warbler. Um, it was uh, it was endemic virtually to these cane breaks, along with things like Carolina parakeets, which are so important. We lost all of these things. It was huge. The greatest extinction crisis in North America on the continent occurred in Alabama with the damming of the Coosa River uh, and with the damming of Muscle Shoals uh, on the Tennessee River. Muscle Shoals was probably the center. It was. There were more mussel species at Mussel Shoals on the Tennessee River than any place else in the world. No other place was like it. It was incredible. And it was damned and it was gone. Uh, so there have been huge losses, I'll have to say. How did anything survive all of that? Well, there was a lot to begin with. Uh, and we have not had the kind of development, uh, the kind of wholesale development that's been seen in many places in the East. Uh, and so there were places where things could hide out, and they're still surviving in many cases, and sometimes at a very large scale, sometimes only at a very small scale. So we have probably about uh, seven or eight or ten minutes left, and I feel like there's just so much more we could cover. Um, before I start to ask a wind-down question, there's a... Uh, uh, there's a a bit of a, the overview that I I don't think we've quite covered that that when I think of the deep south sometimes I think about really thick almost jungle like forests or I think mm -hmm. of of swamps where there's alligators and then there's the trees with what are the types of trees that have the knees who stick up above the water yeah cypress so cypress yes. yeah and, bald cypress but, but then I also think about you know, whenever anybody says Alabama and anybody who knows anything about history, you know, hears immediately thinks of the words red dirt. Um, maybe that's all wrong. Um, but you talked about plains. So can you give us like just a little bit of an overview 
of the not just you've talked about biodiversity, great, but can you give us sort of a landscape diversity? Do you see what I'm asking? Yeah, sure. And and it, it's really fascinating. Um, we have to start in the northern part of the state where the Appalachians and the Alleghenies, if you will, sort of merge. The Alleghenies are the limestone bearing portion uh, of that uh, mountain chain. The Cumberlands, the Alleghenies, the Appalachians and the Piedmont all converge just in a very tight area. And within that, you get this incredible diversity. You get mountains. Uh, they're not as tall as the mountains around Asheville, but they're it's very mountainous and very dissected. It's There are places in northeast Alabama that is as dissected as any place I've ever been in North America. It's just incredibly difficult to get from one place to another because of this because of this orogeny, these these mountains that that are that are everywhere, I will also say that is also the center of cave diversity in North America. So you get this incredible karst environment, where you have so many species in these caves, so many caves, and so many species in these caves. It's just incredible uh, beneath these big mountains towering overneath above you, and then the the, the Great Tennessee River dropping down into Alabama and swinging up, creating a plain there with red soils. But most of the soils in that area are gray in their limestone, and they're very, very distinctive. As you move farther south, you get more of a Blue Ridge Appalachian influence. Uh, and so you get the tail end of the Appalachians down towards Birmingham. And as you move south from Birmingham, you get something we call the Fall Line Hills, which again is this, it's a very beautiful area with rolling hills, uh, all types of soils. They could be very sandy. They could, some of them could be red. Uh, some of them could be gray. There is even some limestone in those fall, fall line hills. And then the fall line drops off. It's where the ancient sea, the Cretaceous sea, uh, that was here when the, uh, dinosaurs gave it up. Uh, it was, uh, that, that shoreline is right there around Montgomery and Selma. Those great, uh, those areas that you know so much about because of the civil rights history uh, south of Birmingham. And there's a reason Martin Luther King marched along that fall line along the Alabama River from Selma to Montgomery. It was a very important topographical, geological reason that led to the events uh, there. And that's so important. As you move farther south, you have this immense coastal plain. And we think of coastal plains. Uh, on the East Coast as being very flat. But in fact, the coastal plain in Alabama is very undulating. It's very, again, you get into these dissected habitats where you think, gosh, this is almost montane. It, it's, it, and, and so you're, you're getting a, a lot of diversity there. And, and then you get all the way to the coast uh, where, uh, as you near the coast, the, the rate of land rise in the coastal plain is about as fast as anywhere else in the coastal plain in North America. So you're actually getting some uplift there, which creates all these dissected habitats going all the way down to the beachfront. The beaches themselves were once beautiful. <laughs> oh, don't make me talk about the beaches. But it's, it's, uh, it's an extraordinary environment from the Appalachians all the way down to the Gulf, to Mobile Bay, uh, to the Gulf of Mexico, this place I, I dearly love. And and it's it's just it's really interesting the, the variety of habitats within that there are many soils there are many environments some of it is jungly there's no question some of it is just grassland it's very open it's 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 a savanna most of Alabama in fact 
was pine savanna. And we would have to just do a whole story on savannas in North America. It's so important to understand that. But they were very open. You could see, that's why I titled my book Longly, Far as the Eye Can See, because you could see through these trees. Uh, and it was a beautiful landscape with high diversity on the ground uh, beneath this canopy of trees. And then there were areas uh, like here, where I am here in Paint Rock where the trees are so thick, it's just you, you can barely see for 100 yards um, through the woods, not even that far, 50 yards. So it's, it's very variable, and it's one of the things that makes the state very interesting. So we just have a couple of minutes left. Thank you for that. That's very, very interesting. Oh, my gosh. We didn't even talk about megafauna at all. Oh, I know, and I know. I really wanted to do that. We'll have to do that sometime. Yeah. Um, I mean, because we didn't talk about wolves. We didn't talk about large ungulates. We didn't talk about predators. We didn't talk. Oh, okay. Another time. Anyway, so um, I don't know how to wrap this up for today. I mean, this, the sort of standard wrap up when we talk about environmental stuff is is what efforts are being made to protect it. And we can either end with that. Well, what? Okay. Instead of ending with that, why don't we end with you talking specifically about. Uh, your work and about the um, Paint Rock Forest Research Center. Yes. So we, Ed Wilson, Eel Wilson, uh, was from Alabama. Uh, Alabama has produced some really fascinating scientists over the years. Ed was one of the great evolutionary biologists the world has ever known. He really was very influential, uh, both as a popular writer, but also as a scientist. And uh Ed Wilson and another evolutionary biologist, Stephen Hubble, who went, both of them went back a ways, uh, came to me looking at ways to develop research centers in Alabama. And, and after, uh, there's a, a long process involved in all of this, but this is the product of that, uh, of those two people basically pestering me about how do we do this? How do we do this in Alabama? You keep talking about it. Let's do something really big there. And so we started this research center here. Uh, in northeast Alabama, uh, in the center of cave diversity, the center of deciduous forest, <laughs> uh, we are we continue to um, understand the forest in very intricate ways. We have a forest dynamics plot where we're looking at every stem bigger than a pencil over a hundred football fields, well, fifty football fields, uh, and and that's an incredible thing. We got fifty thousand stems. We've basically labeled, identified, put on a map measured and we'll follow those stems for 50 years by the time we're through we'll be following a hundred thousand stems for 50 years and it's an incredible way of looking at the forest uh we're also now beginning to do that in the aquatic systems as well we just had a great uh we had a great session where we're sort of laying the framework for understanding everything that happens in that aquatic system in some very new ways and in some very systematic ways so that's uh, what this research center is, is dedicated to. We think it's timely, and I, I want to get this in because this is the future of Eastern North America. <laughs> and, and we're not doing, nobody, very few people are doing anything to protect it. Uh, and we've got to understand where do these, what is the role of these species uh, out of this warehouse? What is the role of these species as climate continues to change? Do those species move north? How are they going to get around Atlanta? <laughs> How are they going to get around Nashville? How are they going to get around Washington, D.C.? It's not going to be all easy like it, it was before. Uh, and what are we going to do about that? This is something we want to be 
we want to understand first. So we have the sense of we really want to understand everything that's going on in this forest. We want to train a new generation of researchers that reflects the diversity of the human diversity of, of North America uh, in a way that research has not and conservation has not. So we're we're in the process of training this new generation. We we have systematic ways of doing that. And we're looking at conservation programs that apply not just in Paint Rock Valley, but throughout the entire Cumberlands, all the way up uh, into Kentucky. So it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting program. And I stress it's important, not because it's important to Alabama, but because it's important to the continent. Well, thank you for that. And I guess the last thing is, can, can you point people specifically toward uh, toward the organization so they can find out more? And also, any other resources about finding more out about biodiversity in in Alabama? And then and then we'll do this again, and we'll, we'll talk more about specific efforts to protect and, and also specific biomes, specific species, whatever. Yes, so you can follow what we're doing here at, uh, at paintrock.org, P-A-I-N-T-R-O-C-K.org, paintrock.org. Dot org. There's an interesting human story associated with the word paint rock, but we'll come back to that some other day. But paintrock.org, there's, there are some great books. Um, the South's Forgotten Grasslands is a great place to begin understanding uh, some of the great lost habitats of the South, some of the great surprises there. There aren't as many popular tomes uh, written about Alabama uh, because the Alabama audience just doesn't support a lot of book writing, unfortunately. Uh, but it's important now for the rest of the country to begin to understand that. So um, there are, um, uh, I, I think our book, Longleaf Far as the Eye Can See, is a great way of looking at these incredible savanna systems. Uh, there's, um, oh, and I'm going to forget the name of the book here in just a minute, but I will, uh, there, there are several other books that focus on Alabama and uh, and some of the uh, and some of the things that make it so important. Um, and and again, I think I wouldn't I wouldn't lose track that Alabama may be the center of the center, but it is part of a network of forest systems that are very important from the Carolinas down into Northwest Florida and over to Mississippi. Uh, we have a lot of writing to do to explain this to the rest of the country. Uh, I'm, I, I wish we were farther ahead on it than we are. Uh, but, uh, but yes, it's, it's, it's a really important subject. You know, uh, that would be a great place to end, but there's, there's just one more thing I want to say, which is yeah. that, um, there's a book I read a few years ago that was really good about Iowa, uh, called a country so full of game because Iowa was several hundred years ago, extremely biodiverse. and right. I don't remember the name of it, but there's a guy who wrote about 120 years ago about how incredibly biodiverse Florida was. Right. And then Sea of Slaughter by Farley Mowat is just, of course, heartbreaking page by page about contemporary accounts of what the Gulf of Maine was like, of what, you know, what, what the passenger pigeons were like, the Eskimo curlews, the, the, the great banks of cod and Okay, I'm not in any way, and I hope you don't take this as an insult. I'm not trying to take away from Alabama's glory, but I love a line I believe it was by Edward Abbey about 
you know, wherever you are was the most beautiful place on earth. No, that's right. And and it, it, it is always really understanding where you are that that is so important. And, you know, not we have these images in our heads of, of where we are that we get from other places. And that's always a big impediment to really living in a place well and understanding how to live there. Um, Alabama is a very different state than California. I've actually lived in California as well. And and I can tell you it's a different place. And they're both beautiful. And they're they're both places that deserve our attention. I I do think that Alabama's importance has been neglected. And so it's really important for me to emphasize that. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And it, it and that's one reason I mentioned the book with, about Iowa first, because yeah. when we think of Iowa, we think of cornfields. And that's right. At, at one point it was full of buffalo and mountain lions and everybody else. And and likewise, Alabama. And uh and not to mention the the native horses that were uh wiped out uh and the native camels. Uh and that diversity, that great loss of diversity is something else we need to talk about uh because it's it's still playing havoc with the landscape and it's something we very much need to understand the loss of that great megafauna. We can recover some of it, but not all of it. Uh, and I think what little we can recover, we should be working on very hard. Well, thank you so much for all of that. And thank you for your great work in the world. And thanks for being on the program. This has been really fun. And Derek. I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Bill Finch. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. <laughs>